You know, in September of 2011, Brandon Wright was a 21-year-old student at Utah State University. He was driving his motorcycle to class one day when he crashed into a BMW car. Both vehicles immediately burst into flame and Wright was pinned underneath the car. A crowd gathered pretty quickly and they could see that Wright was alive, but he was unconscious. No one could get to him. No one could move the car. But incredibly, a group of people gathered, a dozen or so people, they all lined up and together they lifted the burning car off of Wright and they pulled him out to safety, saving his life. Well, in a news interview on September the 15th, just a few days later, Wright wept from a hospital bed as he thanked all of those people for saving his life and he rightly called them heroes and, and that he owes his life to them. You know, it is amazing what can happen when a group of people get together and decide to help someone in need. And that's what we see in our text for today. Now, we're walking through for a few weeks some miracles that Jesus performs in the Gospel of Matthew in the hopes that they would ignite in us a renewed sense of awe. And this miracle that we're going to look at in Matthew 9 begins with a group of friends getting together to help someone in need. Matthew 9, starting in verse 1. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier, to say, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. Now, just before this, Jesus has completed a couple of amazing miracles. You know, he and the disciples are out on a boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, and storm blows up, and he miraculously cal uh, calms the storm. When they dock on the other side, Jesus miraculously casts demons out of two demon-possessed men. He shows not only does he have power over nature, he has power over the spiritual realm. Well, now in Matthew 9, right on the heels of this, he shows us that he has power over the body. This is the sixth miracle in a stream of nine of them that Matthew records early on in his gospel account. You know, when Jesus had healed the the two demon-possessed men, the people of the region came out and, and they rejected Jesus and they, they asked him to leave. Well, he leaves. He and the disciples get in the boat and go. They now cross back over the Sea of Galilee to, quote, his own city. Well, that's the city of Capernaum. This is where Jesus kind of kept his home base of ministry during his time in Galilee. Verse 2, while he's there, behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now, as we've seen a lot, it's pretty typical. Matthew's account of this miracle is very concise. It's straightforward. The Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Luke both include the same account, and really they provide more detail. 
This miracle begins with four friends who decide to help their friend. This man is a paralytic, meaning he was either born this way or he had some sort of an illness or some sort of an accident. Think paraplegic. He, he cannot walk. For this man, he is in one of the worst life situations imaginable, especially considering the lack of basic amenities in his historical era. His life is lived full-time on a mat that's three foot wide by six feet long. He relies solely upon family and friends to pick him up and to move him different places. He can't work, which has condemned him to a life as a beggar. His entire life is based off of other people's generosity. So there are no treatment centers for him. There are no wheelchairs. There's no disability act. There's, there's nothing that is designed to help him. He is at the mercy of others. But he does have one great thing going for him. Apparently, he's got amazing friends. So Mark and Luke both tell us that these four friends come to pick him up, literally pick him up, and carry him to Jesus. And what they do is incredible. You know, we're not told how far they carry him. So maybe this guy is a resident of Capernaum and they've just carried him across the city or a few blocks but we don't know that. Maybe they've carried him from some distance away. So we don't know how long this has been going on. And when they get to where Jesus is, he's, he's in a house and he's teaching. But so many people have gathered to hear him teach. The house is filled with a standing room only crowd. And the crowd has spilled out to where people are surrounding the house. A crowd has gathered. And these guys can't even get close to where Jesus is. So one of them comes up with this ingenious plan that, while creative, involves damaging personal property. Houses in their day had flat roofs and an outside staircase to access that roof. So the crowd's too big for them to navigate through. So they go around it and they go above it. They carry their friend up onto the roof. They set him down and they proceed to begin digging a hole in the roof. Now, as this is happening, remember, Jesus is in that house teaching a large crowd. You know, crashing through a roof is not a silent activity. So, you know, the, the crowd hears the, the, the stomping happening above them, dust particles begin to fall, then chunks of clay and dried leaves begin to shower the crowd. So I, I imagine Jesus has obviously had to stop teaching because this is a huge distraction. I mean, this is the equivalent in, in our world of a crying baby holding a ringing cell phone in church. I mean, it is distraction upon distraction. There is there's no way you can continue teaching at this point. You just have to stop and acknowledge, I think someone is trying to break through the roof. So chunks continue to fall. Finally, there's a hole and the sun begins to shine into the shadowed house. A face appears in the hole and then two and then three and then four. You know, this isn't a small hole that they have to create. Their friend is a grown man. Three foot wide by six foot long mat. This is a big hole. And then the crowd sits there and waits. As these men tie ropes 
to the four corners of this man's mat, and they slowly begin to lower him down through the roof into the midst of the crowd. I mean, this is an absolutely insane scene. And now there he lay on a mat, hovering in midair in front of Jesus' face. And after all of this work, after all of this trouble, after all of this effort, after all of this damage, what does Jesus say in response? Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Well, gee, thanks, Jesus, but that's not really why we're here. Like, that's not at all why they were there. That's not why they carried their friend to Jesus. That's not why they destroyed this man's roof. That's not why they lowered him down. They weren't there for this. Can you imagine the disappointment in hearing those words from Jesus? That's not why they're there. These guys have stepped up to help their friend. They want him healed. They want him to be able to walk and have a normal life. And all they get is this seemingly empty platitude that his sins are forgiven. Now, Jesus obviously knows why they're there. So why doesn't Jesus go right into the healing? Why doesn't he just say, hey, good for you guys. Boop, you're healed. Why doesn't he do that? Because Jesus meets you at your point of greatest need. This man's greatest need, contrary to what he thought, what his friends thought, probably what the crowd thought, his greatest need is not that he get healed and walk. His greatest need wasn't physical, it was spiritual. So let's talk about this for a minute, because I don't want to minimize the reality of the need for healing, because many people right now are desperate for Jesus to heal them. They've had a, a cancer diagnosis, or they've had some ongoing mental health issues, or their, their diabetes is giving them constant frustration, or fill in the blank. Now, why hasn't God healed? Or, or maybe you just lost a loved one to COVID or, or some other illness. You, you begged God to heal and to intervene. Why didn't God heal? Well, as we'll see as this account continues, Jesus absolutely can and sometimes does heal people. But from an eternal perspective, physical healing is not your greatest need. Here's why. All physical healing is temporary. All of it. So let's say God heals you today of whatever it is that is ailing you. I mean, how awesome. How amazing is that we would, we would be the first ones to celebrate with you that God stepped in and you know, the, the diagnosis is now changed and you know, the tumor's gone, you know, whatever it may be. We would be thrilled with something like that. But here's the thing. You're going to die of something else. Something else is going to come and take you out. All healing is temporary. So because eternity is long and permanent, your greatest need is not regarding anything in this life, but the next one. Your most pressing issue in life is spiritual. A soul not saved by the loving sacrifice of Jesus. A life of sin not forgiven by the Savior. So I think here we get a glimpse of the ministry philosophy of Jesus. 
Yes, he cares about the physical and the emotional and the, the financial ailments that people have. But he cares first and foremost about your soul. Son, your sins are forgiven. You know, whether or not you ever walk again is secondary at best to that reality. And whether or not you would ever walk again, this still is cause for celebration. Now, if God never did anything else for you outside of salvation, your life would still be lived in grateful response to his grace. And though all physical healing is temporary, God ultimately heals everyone of every ailment. The moment you step into eternity is the moment of your eternal healing. My stepdad was born with muscular dystrophy. He never walked a single day in his life. And he lived in that reality with much class and dignity. He was a brilliant man with a sharp mind. He graduated from the University of Illinois with degrees both in law and in accounting. He was a very successful attorney and accountant. And by the time we met him when he married my mom, he was already in his 40s, well past his expected lifespan. And he loved my mom well. He loved his grandkids. And most importantly, he loved the Lord. God never healed him, though he ached for that reality. He would have given anything to be able to get up out of his wheelchair and to play with his grandkids, or to, to go to work strolling through the parking lot like any other person could do. It never happened. But on November the 2nd of 2015, very early in the morning before the sun even came up, God graciously, lovingly healed him forever as he walked for the very first time. As he stepped into eternity and walked with the Lord in heaven, God ultimately, eventually heals all of us. Now, Jesus' statement about forgiving sins may have disappointed the paralytic, but it exploded in the minds of the religious leaders. Verse 3. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. Well, at first glance, they're right. I mean, Mark and Luke both record an additional statement by these leaders. Only God can forgive sin. That's very true. Isaiah 43, verse 25, God says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Isaiah 44, 22, God says, I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me for I have redeemed you. Psalm 103, starting in verse 8, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, 
So great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Only God forgives sin. He and he alone can absolve you from sin's penalty. You know, one person can forgive another person you know, if one has wronged the other. And when, they, when we say you know, one person has forgiven another person, what we mean is they're choosing to, to set that aside and to move on with life without letting that define them or the person who wronged them. But no person can absolve you from sin's ultimate punishment except God. Because ultimately, God is the one that you have sinned against. It's his law you've violated. It's his commands that you have failed to keep. It's he that you have insulted. So the scribes, the academic religious experts, declare Jesus is blaspheming, a grievous sin of insulting God. But that's not really what's happening here, is it? Jesus now shows the utter ignorance with which they speak. Verse 4. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? Now, that's a great question. Which one is easier? Well, here's the thing. Anyone can say your sins are forgiven. People say it all the time. But there is no way to validate that. There is no way to empirically prove whether that person actually had the authority to forgive those sins. We don't know if it actually happened or not. They've just said it. It's just words. But if you say rise and walk to a paralytic, there's a pretty simple way to validate that to know whether it's true or not, whether you have that power or not. So which one's easier? Jesus is using what philosophers call an a fortiori argument. If the greater thing is true, so is the lesser. If the harder thing is true, so is the easier. So if Jesus can prove his power over the body, then he can prove his power over the soul. Verse 6. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. Which is easier? Well, for Jesus, it's the same. They're both just as easy as the other. He holds all power over the body, and he should. He's its creator. You know, atrophied muscles and tendon strength and bone warping, all of it was gone in an instant. But what does that prove? That he can heal somebody if he wants to? Absolutely. It certainly proves that. He, he can heal anybody of anything. But that proves oh so much more. It proves that he has the power not just to heal a body, but to heal a soul. Now, once again, Jesus has revealed who he is to the entire crowd. 
You see, if, uh, if person A wrongs person B, offends them, insults them, sins against them, person A doesn't go to person C and ask for forgiveness. They can't grant forgiveness. He didn't wrong or insult or sin against them. Person A has to go to person B. You have to go to the one that you've wronged, the one you've insulted, the one you've sinned against, because only that person can forgive you. So if Jesus forgives sins, it means that he is the one who has been wronged by your sin. And who is it that you ultimately sin against? So here's the logic. Three statements. Statement number one, only God can forgive sin. Statement number two, Jesus forgives sin. Statement number three, therefore, Jesus is God. Do you see how the logic works? Only God can forgive sin. The, the, the scriptures are abundantly clear. Only God forgives sin. But Jesus forgives sin. So what does that mean? It means that Jesus is God. That's how simple, basic logic works. So by the healing of this man and by the forgiving of his sin, Jesus proves yet again he is no mere man. He is God in the flesh. So when Jesus turns to this man, you know, he, he, he asks the, the scribes, these leaders, this question, which is easier to say this or to say that. He turns to the paralytic and he says to him, rise and walk. When he does that, eternity hangs in the balance in this very moment. Because if this man doesn't actually rise and walk, if he just stays there, still paralyzed, lying on a mat then Jesus is nobody. He is not who he claimed to be. He is powerless over the body. And if he is powerless over the body, he is powerless over your soul and he cannot forgive your sin. But if he turns to this man and commands him to rise and walk and he does in fact rise and walk, then Jesus is Lord and forgiveness is found in him. Each one of us will come to a point in our lives, maybe even right now for you, where you are begging God to heal you from some physical ailment. Well, be encouraged to know that he absolutely can heal you. He lacks no power over your body. But that is not a promise or a guarantee that though he can heal you, that he will heal you. He doesn't promise that. He doesn't guarantee that. He's not promised you healing from every disease in this life. But in Jesus Christ, he has promised you ultimate healing, eternal healing found in his saving power. By the work of Jesus on the cross, your sin can be forgiven and you can then step confidently into eternity knowing that you are healed forever. Horace Bushnell writes, forgiveness is man's deepest need 
and God's highest achievement. And because of Jesus' saving work on your behalf, he can now say, not just to this man in Matthew 9, lying on a mat, he can say to all who would come to him in faith, take heart, son. Take heart, daughter. Your sins are forgiven. He can say that to you today. If you believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died for your sins and rose from the dead, if you repent of sin and turn to Jesus, if you confess Jesus as Lord, if you unite yourself with Jesus as you're immersed in the waters of baptism, he can declare to you this day as you have come to him in faith, take heart, your sins are forgiven. Let's pray. Father, there are so many people who right now have been and are begging you to heal, to, to remove some physical ailment from their life. And you can. And it's right and good that we ask you to do that. Because you can. And you have promised that ultimately you will heal. Even if you don't heal right now, even if what it is that they're asking to be healed from eventually takes their life, you have promised that you will ultimately, eternally heal. That's the glory of heaven. We get this new resurrected body that is fit to live forever. Thank you that you make such promises. So we don't go to a place of bitterness or resentment or disappointment because you don't do what we ask you to do. Because ultimately, from an eternal perspective, you do far more than we could ever ask or imagine. So thank you for Jesus, for his work on the cross. Thank you not only for his power over the body, which we are in awe of. Thank you ultimately for his power over the soul that he has the authority to forgive sins. So for those who do not know Jesus as Savior, who do not know him as Lord, may they turn to him in faith and hear from him, take heart. Your sins are forgiven. Thank you for Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.